Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. I Am Big Bird, The Carol Spinney Story, is the affectionate portrait of the creator of Sesame Street's worldwide icons, Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. Watch it on demand now while it's in theaters. In Slow West, Michael Fassbender plays a mysterious man who gets persuaded by an outlaw while crossing the American frontier. It premieres on demand this Friday, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I am Matt Singer. In this episode, against our attorney's advice, and because we really just can't help ourselves, Allison and I delve into the murky and possibly murderous past to look at Andrew Jarecki's scripted film inspired by Robert Durst, All Good Things, as well as the docuseries that came from it, Jarecki's HBO project, The Jinx. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Our colleague Gilbert Cruz actually made a very good suggestion uh, on Twitter for a theme, fiction films from documentarians, since Andrew Jarecki is best known for his first film, the documentary Capturing the Freedmans. And we were intrigued, uh, but then we realized that Michael Moore's lone fiction film effort, Canadian Bacon, is not available on any streaming platform, and our high standards just wouldn't allow us to go on without it, really. Unacceptable. And so instead, we have some other true crime movies to recommend. But first up, it's Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, uh, you're up this week. What are our picks? Well, first of all, you joke, but what does it say about this subgenre of fiction films by documentary directors that Canadian Bacon was the first and one of the few movies that I actually could name off the top of my head? (laughs) Maybe we were better off switching to a different category. Anyway, we'll we'll get to more true crime picks in a minute. Let's let's do opening break. Our our first pick here is called Maggie. It is the new film from Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm very happy to report it is a good one. It is available now on VOD. And I'm not just saying that it's good as the world's preeminent scholar in the field of Schwarzeneggernomics. Uh, in a pretty serious departure from almost Everything he's ever done before, Maggie is a quiet little horror movie with basically no action. It's mostly a family melodrama about the relationship between a father and his daughter, with the twist being that this daughter has been infected with this zombie virus that in a matter of weeks will transform her into a member of The Walking Dead. And so with the remaining time they have left, Arnold's character has to protect his daughter and also decide what he is going to do When she turns into a zombie, will he bring her to this quarantine zone, which is the official government policy, what you're supposed to do? Will he hide her and take care of her even when she turns into a drooling, brain-eating monster? Or will he kill her himself to, you know, end her suffering, put her out of her misery, so on and so forth? And I like this movie for a bunch of reasons. First of all, I really like 
anytime Arnold is exploring themes of fatherhood, marriage, domestic strife, uh, that's something I always find very interesting in his movies. This is one of the richer movies he's made in that regard. There's a lot going on here on an allegorical level to his real-life marriage, his real-life failings of the father. There's a very interesting monologue he gives about his wife, who is not in the picture anymore. In the movie, she's dead, but... Very interesting how he describes her and how he feels he was never smart enough to be with her. And just, I don't know, there's some interesting stuff going on in that scene that I found very, very fascinating. So it's interesting from a Schwarzenegger's perspective. But if you're not an expert like me, I think it's just a good movie. I think it's a good performance from Arnold. Very sad, very, you know, it's not the stereotypical Arnold guy who screams puns while he kills people. I mean, that's part of why it's so effective. It's like that classic Arnold guy was so good at killing. Killing was so easy for him, so meaningless. He would crack jokes while he did it. That was part of the fun. Here, he only has to potentially kill one person, his daughter, and he can't bring himself to do it. He spends the whole movie dreading it and, and feeling devastated over it. And I thought that was a, it's a very interesting switch. The fact that it's Arnold in this role adds this extra dimension of poignance to the whole thing. That, uh, that The former Superman who could do anything now tired older his face is you know wrinkled he's definitely you know weathered and aged in his face just that i i think there's something very very much to that And I know you saw the film. I don't know what you thought about the film, but I know because you you wrote this piece, the title of which at BuzzFeed was Arnold Schwarzenegger looks back at the roles that redefined his career. You you interviewed Arnold Schwarzenegger. You talked about his entire career. I did. In the betrayal of the century. <laughs> you spoke with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, he was lovely too. Ah. Yeah. He was tweeting about what a joy it was on Twitter. He was funny. He was totally open. He made jokes. He mimed at one point, grabbing a grenade, pulling out the pin with his teeth and throwing it. I hate you. I hate you so much. It was excellent. I will say, uh, this movie does occupy maybe my least favorite, the, the action that is my least favorite in any zombie movie which is the part where someone hesitates about killing this like drooling corpse that's walking towards that them. used to be someone they love person right yeah. and it's a thing that in action-based zombie movies i always get really frustrated with because right. you're like look that thing is like chomping on someone's like on a human arm it's like half De- right. like desiccated it's not the person you love anymore right that's like a one that's like a beat in a normal zombie exactly. movie in this movie that's the movie exactly that's the whole movie and it does i think really actually dig into that and make it into a human drama in which and it has this neat and very complicated kind of almost like libertarian streak in mm. that Arnold's character, who's like so kind of this like American man, except not he's from the Austrian part of the Midwest where he has a farm, I guess. (laughs) Exactly, but you know, so clearly used to doing things himself and taking care of his family and that, and yet when he hesitates in terms of like 
I don't want to bring my daughter to the government program and all of that. Yeah. You understand that he is doing something dangerous, that yes. his daughter is going to at some point prove a danger to him and possibly to other people. Yeah. And that the movie is very kind of nicely uneasy about that. That like Yeah, it's ambivalent. You understand what the, right the thing depth to do of is. his love and how much he's he's like he's got such heartache but you right. also you are very worried about him i was a little iffy on the whole like the basic premise is that you know he takes her she's been infected she's in the hospital but she's because there's all this time before she goes a zombie they're like oh well, we'll let you take her home and i know it does not seem like a very make, good practice yeah in theory <laughs> that doesn't make or in practice it makes no sense why any hospital would ever let someone who's infected with like you know well, the equivalent when of it a, makes it makes it clear that other people have not been following the rules right it general i just i generally felt like that was kind of just an excuse to dig into these ideas which i think it does fairly well i don't right. think that the setup is all that and it, smart I but mean, i just think fair, i mean the, I, I don't i think i'm certainly arguing on its i think like the things that are not necessarily there but it does it is set it's not a zombie apocalypse movie but it's definitely set in a uh, civilization that's, that's pretty beat up yeah yeah it's true, like, you know, but it it's functioning like okay. It's, well. it's 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 it, I think that's a victim. They're a victim of the very small budget here. They can't really show the wider the world scape, too yeah. much. Yeah. So, but yeah. I think I think it's a really good, solid Arnold movie. Uh, I think as part of this phase of his career, as you would know, having discussed his whole career with he him, he said he didn't feel he could have done a role like this earlier. That may be he wasn't true. Father, yeah. That may be true. Um, and that's something we could talk about for ten or twelve hours. Yes. I'm sure, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good one. It's worth checking out. It's Maggie. It is now available on VOD. Very quickly here, we've got two other picks. The first one is called Five Flights Up. It's directed by Richard Longcrane. It's also now available on VOD, and I will read you the plot description. Over one crazy weekend, a longtime married couple discover that finding a new apartment is not about winding down, but starting a new adventure. And uh, the main appeal here is the main couple in the film, which is played by Diane Keaton, and Morgan Freeman, which is a very intriguing combination. And from what I've read and seen about the movie, that's you know they're they're great together. So that's a, that's an intriguing combination and an, an intriguing premise to me. Uh, you know, movies about New York apartments. I'm sure we would both have uh, strong opinions about yes. having experienced that world for ourselves uh, on several occasions. So that's Five Flights Up, and that is available now on VOD. And finally, uh, a film entitled Welcome to Me. This is also available now on VOD, and it's directed by Shira Piven, who is apparently Jeremy Piven's sister. I had no idea. I didn't know this either. And 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 the wife of Adam McKay. So fascinating. Part of I would say comedy royalty, and it sounds like an interesting movie. I'll read you the plot description. It stars Kristen Wiig. She plays Alex Alice Klieg, who wins the Mega Millions lottery. She quits her meds and buys her own talk show. Inspired by the immortal Oprah, she broadcasts her peculiar views on everything. And that description, I don't know, it could go in a lot of different directions. But I read the review uh, for the film at The Dissolve. Uh, my old stomping grounds of The Dissolve, Keith Phipps, wrote the review, gave it a positive review, I think three out of five stars, and made it sound really interesting. I'll read you just a very brief excerpt from his review. He says, there are a number of obvious directions Welcome to Me could take this material, and part of what makes it so refreshing and insightful is that it takes none of them. Instead of scoring tired points about the banality of television or the ways the 21st century encourages narcissism or the way money changes people, the film focuses on Alice. And the longer it spends with her, the less freakish she seems. So you've got an interesting filmmaker, an interesting star, an interesting premise. So I'm, I'm sold on that one. That's Welcome to Me. 
and that's available now on VOD. Mom's making coffee. What? Why are you hiding? I'm not. Is it awful? Awful? Is it awful? No, it's not awful at all. It's just different, that's all. It's just very different. You know, everybody talks to each other. And there's a ham with pineapples on it with little cherries in there. I like those cherries. Yeah, I like them too. episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you vote on the film or sometimes a television show that we will review in the next installment. And this time around, your choices were All Good Things, starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst, Other Space, the Yahoo original series executive produced by Paul Feig, and Boy Meets Girl, the directorial debut of Leos Carax. And All Good Things was the runaway winner this time around with just over 50% of the vote. All Good Things, which is currently streaming on Netflix, is the fiction debut of composer, movie phone co-founder, yeah. and Oscar-nominated documentarian Andrew Jarecki. It's a strange resume. It is. But his first film was Capturing the Freedmans, uh, which I suppose you could also classify as true crime in a weird way. Absolutely. I would say it qualifies for sure. All Good Things is inspired by the life of Robert Durst, who is the eldest son of New York real estate tycoon Seymour Durst. And Durst is also a confirmed killer of at least one person and the suspected murderer of at least two more. Uh, Ryan Gosling plays the Durst character, who in the film is called David Marks, though most of the beats of his life are, are Robert Durst's. Uh, Kirsten Dunst plays Katie, his first wife, a medical student who disappeared in 1982 and whose body was never found. Frank Langella is David's emotionally withholding father, while Lily Rabe is David's best friend, uh, the equivalent of Susan Berman, who Durst is also suspected of killing. Philip Baker Hall plays a stand-in for Morris Black, a Texas man that Durst befriended while on the run and living as a woman in Galveston, and who Durst definitely killed and dismembered, and then successfully got off uh, um, pleading self-defense. All good things sat on the shelf for a while. Jarecki ended up buying it back from the Weinstein Company, uh, which was originally set to release it, and he sold the rights to Magnolia Pictures, and it got mixed reviews in its release, but did please one very important part <laughs> of the audience. That would be Robert Durst himself, yeah. who called Jarecki to tell him he enjoyed the movie and eventually ended up agreeing to do a, a few interviews that became the center of Jarecki's docuseries Jinx, which is currently streaming on HBO Go and which I feel like we have to talk about, at least in the context of this movie. It's very difficult to look at all good things and not also talk about what followed, particularly since Durst ended up getting arrested again. So Matt, do you think all good things has become a more interesting movie in the light of the jinx and its revelations? Or maybe uh, do you think, maybe the question should be, do you think as a standalone movie, all good things has that much to say? As a standalone movie, I don't think it's all that uh, useful or interesting or entertaining, what have you. But 
maybe interesting is the wrong word because I do think that it has retroactively become more interesting as a film, as an object, because it directly inspired the Jinx and led to the creation of the Jinx. And as you said, the guy that it's about, Robert Durst, liked it. Arguably, the only person who really liked this movie was the man it was about and the man who it showed. I wouldn't say it showed him innocent it, it sort of it hedges its bets the, the film does in terms yeah. of trying to not necessarily say that he's guilty it right strongly implies but you never see him you never see him do wife. anything and it does imply that there are other that there i don't know if there's a conspiracy but that other people may have been involved or could have had motivations or it, i would say it leaves a reasonable doubt perhaps right that yes. you would say it seems that he probably is guilty, but it would be hard to convict him if that was the case, which in a sense is makes it a, sort of a faithful adaptation of real life, right? Because that's kind of what happened, at least to that point in the in the actual legal system. So it is fascinating to see this movie today going, okay, why did Robert Durst like it so much? And trying to sort of get into his headspace and see it through that lens. I would say if the jinx had never happened, if we didn't know that key detail— I don't think it's a particularly interesting movie. And I do think that The Jinx, the show, is a much more useful, entertaining, fascinating uh, version of these events. Not not just because they're uh, the, the nonfiction version to the fiction version, but I think they're, it's, it's more cleverly structured. I think it's better told. I think it's it, it's more compelling in terms of the watchability. It's this serialized narrative that I think is very well done. So, yeah, I, I do think that the Jinx does make all good things more interesting in a certain sense, but I still don't think it's a very good movie or would really recommend it except as a curio in that sense. I would totally agree. And I think what is very telling in watching the movie is that it doesn't feel like Jarecki and his screenwriters really get Durst. Mm. Like, it is obviously his life is filled with crazy details. He has this fascinating life starting and this very disturbing life starting with this early incident when he was a child where he his mother jumped off the roof of their house and he saw it and going through going through even to the point where when he was on the run in Galveston having dismembered someone he's get, he gets caught because he shoplifted a sandwich from the grocery store yeah all of the details of his life and, are fast. Well, and, and they continue did you see the story this week of what he did or oh, I obviously I think he's in custody now but uh, there it just came out that he had like <laughs> urinated on a candy rack in a CVS <laughs> and allegedly this was a medical condition his lawyer claims that he was very ill at the time. But they had security video of it, and he's watching it happen. It's just like, this is a weird dude. He is, yeah, certainly a weird dude. And I think when you watch All Good Things, it, you're like, okay, what is this story about? It's a story about yeah. maybe if you're rich, you can get away with anything, mm -hmm. which is sort of a theme throughout Durst's life. Certainly, he comes from a very wealthy, very powerful family. He's accorded a lot of benefit of the doubt that, that someone without that kind of backing and power probably would not. Right. But I don't think that the movie really digs into that. And also, I, I mean, like, it doesn't, that as a theme maybe is not enough, I would say, to, to kind of, it kind of pull together this whole crazy story. Uh, I, I think that watching this movie, you feel like, Jarecki almost had to. It's a really good thing that he got to do the jinx because he got to directly grapple with the subjects yeah. to kind of try and pin him down. Right. You know? And I think in this movie, 
Gosling does a good job. And I think maybe one of the things that might have appealed to Durst is that he certainly makes him empathetic as much as he is scary. He, I, I would say that that's probably exactly what appealed to him about it is, is Gosling's performance and specifically the first part of the movie, maybe the first 45 minutes or so, which Where I think are the- they fall in love. And, and then, but then, and, and while he's falling in love, he's also sort of being put in a box by his father, right? That the Frank Langella character is controlling him and manipulating him and forcing him to become a, a guy, a cog in the machine of this giant empire, which he doesn't want to do. And I think that's what he responded to, or I'm guessing one of the things, because it makes him a little sympathetic. Just not that he would, not that it justifies killing, but just that you could see how hard it could be to be Robert Durst that yeah it's it, that having wealth opens a lot of doors and it does perhaps make it easier to circumvent the legal system in some ways but it does also force you to you know he couldn't just live in Vermont and be a hippie which is what he wanted to do he had to go you know work for his dad which made him miserable be a bag man for his dad which he hated you know so I think that's something that appealed to Durst perhaps yeah and I think Gosling does a good job with it, but also it is is held back a bit by the idea that I, I think the movie never really does seem like it it has a firm grasp of Durst and like why he does maybe the things he did. Right. And why and whether and I, I, I think the thing that emerges in the jinx in the jinx that is the really interesting question is why does Durst come to talk you know why does he agree to participate right. does he want to get caught yes which is i think one of the big ongoing and fascinating questions in the, the jinx that is of course never an element in all good things i think you could perhaps say uh, listening to you describe these issues is that perhaps the like all good things is asking these questions and does doesn't really answer them and the jinx asks these questions to the guy and he answers them as best he can and so we're at least able to see what he has to say for himself and then judge that for ourselves. Right. And yeah, when you have a kind of screenwriterly narrative and maybe not a kind of very fuzzy one, you know, versus the narrative. I mean, a a lot of the jinx is about trying to build a narrative that makes you look more empathetic, Mm -hmm. right? Robert Durst, who doesn't necessarily calculate this very well, which is one of the things that makes those interviews so creepy. <laughs> yeah. Is that, but Robert Durst wants to tell his side of the story. Right. Right. And that you're not really sure, you're not really getting anyone's side of the story in all good things. Right. And you're not really getting, in some ways, the fact that it lets him, it leaves the fate, the real fate of his wife, and it leaves kind of the details of what happened to Susan Berman. Uh, it, it doesn't hammer them down. Felt a little bit like a cop out to me. I, you know, if you're doing a right. fictionalized version of this person, it's not. It's named David Marks. Right. They changed all the names, then and yet why they... don't you just go ahead and show it? Absolutely, like, I felt the know, same way. It felt right. very kind of weirdly coy. And I, I perhaps I that was understand. another thing that uh, Durst liked about it is that it didn't fictionalize really too much. At least from what we know from the Jinx, it's it stays pretty close to the events that are described in that in the documentary series. Right. Whereas they could have invented an ending. They could have made him totally guilty. They could have made someone else guilty. They could have done all these sorts of things, but they really did stick to the record, the factual record that they had, which yeah. maybe that was another thing that appealed to Durst about it. And, you know, the things that they do kind of, the little bits of, I don't know, like uh, space that they take include things like uh, that conversation with his father 
about why his father took him to see his mother on the roof where his father is like explains, you know, I thought that seeing you would make her back down or, and also the implication that his father knew what happened to, to Kathy. Yeah. There's a little implication there. And they also sort of, um, that the second woman who's later murdered is sort of implicated in helping him. I guess they allude to that in the jinx too, but here they sort of make it more explicit that she was, you know, posing as, as the wife, to help create this alibi perhaps which is another potential i don't know if it's a deviation for the record but it's 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 at least speculating in a way that the movie doesn't all that much the other thing that we haven't mentioned that's another difference and i think another strength of the jinx and a weakness of all good things is the jinx is allowed to be six episodes i don't know exactly how many minutes but the movie is a hundred minutes and this is just way too much story for a hundred minute movie if you know one one murder one disappearance would be enough for a hundred minute movie with all the backstory and 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 robert durst's history with his family but the fact that they continue forward you know she disappears uh kirsten dunst uh the the wife character disappears katie and then the movie starts to kind of jump, jump, jump ahead so they can get to all the other crazy right. stuff that Robert Durst did, disguising himself as a woman and living and, and then killing the neighbor and then cutting up the body and all these sorts of things. So to like cram all that in, they, they, they it really just jumps ahead. And, and I, I don't I felt like all the sequences where Gosling has is, is in a dress and is talking with Philip, uh, Philip Baker Hall. All they named the character Malvern Bump. I know the real guy's name was Morris Black, Malvern and they changed Bump the name like a, Malvern Bump. It sounds like a Harry Potter bad guy. Yeah, yeah, what a ridiculous name, a fictionalized name to give the guy. It was every time he calls him Malvern, I'm like, what is going on? And 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 they don't. I didn't feel like I understood. Like you're saying, I didn't understand the Durst at that point. We jumped so far ahead so fast. And suddenly he is dressing like a woman and exhibiting stranger and stranger behavior. And it's like, if he is innocent, as he claims, like, why is this happening? And we in the jinx, Jarecki asks him about all that stuff. He like, has expl- Why did you shave off your eyebrows? Right. Which is not something that's even in the movie, but right. it's like another weird moment in Robert Durst's life. Right. And Durst has answers. Now, whether we buy them or not. We might, that's up to us but at least he's there to talk about it and here it's just tossed off tossed off tossed off yeah and i think you know we, we haven't mentioned i think kirsten dunst is very good in this role i thought so too she's actually like really she really brings a lot of life to this character who could just be like the blonde who dies you yes. know she and she makes it understandable that she sticks around mm-hmm. even though she's more and more afraid and mm-hmm. she's more and more worried about not just her like her marriage which is at a certain point pretty much dead yeah but like her personal safety and i i think the movie manages that really well and it also makes it clear that they were genuinely in love like that in the beginning he really swept her off her feet that he really won her over and that even though he is a weird guy that he was weird in a way that was charming he was charming yeah, yeah. That, and gosling and her are great together i agree i liked her in this and i was like watching that transformation she goes where she's so sweet and warm and kind of kind of the classical Kirsten Dunst character in certain ways that early those early scenes and then watching her kind of her life go down this path she doesn't like and how sad she gets it's like this is a really good performance and it was kind of making me go we need more Kirsten Dunst why yeah. isn't she doing more stuff she's probably so financially successful right now <laughs> that she doesn't have to after all those Spider-Man movies but Uh, This made me wish that she was a little busier. You know, I would love to see more of her. And I think to your point that 
each of these sections could be their own movie. I feel like that whole thing could have been drawn out more and been yeah. its own movie. Or even like Susan Berman, as played by Lily Rabe, is this character that you're like, that could be a whole movie. This girl who kind of clings to like for like ends up kind of, uh, you know, declaring loyalty to this guy because of maybe things from her own past. Right. And who really ill-advisedly sticks by him into adulthood and beyond and you know that relationship is so kind of complex and just sketched out very quickly in the movie and lily rabe is very good as well and you know but gets less screen time i i do and feel in the, like but in the jinx that that, that woman gets her own like episode yeah. where she's really the focal point and her story with durst is the focal point so again it's it's that this story is so large and sprawling that it doesn't have a, a convenient through line narrative so that's what the Jinx was able to do was, okay, this episode is about Galveston. This episode is about him and, and Kathy. This episode is about Susan Berman. Like they were able to do that step by step and compartmentalize it because so much of his life is compartmentalizing these horrible things that he may or may not have done and then acting like they never happened, right? Or that he didn't do it or that he's innocent. So I thought that th that's where the Jinx was so great was it – it lends itself to an episodic structure because he's had these episodes in his life that it that it don't really lend themselves to a, a a hundred minute fiction fictional movie. Yeah, so I'm not sorry I saw all good things. But I'm, I'm glad I watched I, in, it out of curiosity, yes. but I, I I feel like in the context of the Jinx, it is really interesting, if not a successful movie. I it's think also though a little redundant now that it, we have the Jinx. It is, but I think that divide, I, in some ways, it's. It makes this point for what nonfiction can do, and particularly mm. this kind of like almost investigative nonfiction can do, where that that fiction can't, right? Right. Especially when you have the subject to interrogate, uh, and he certainly gets interrogated in the right. Jinx. I think it does speak to to finding. Obviously, this is an incredible story, but it's more of a story for television or for a longer. You know, you've got to know the right medium to tell your story. And I think that film was just the wrong medium, it's at least in this length, in this approach. You know, maybe a multiple part, you know, like Carlos is a move is a TV show slash movie or whatever. But like that maybe could have been what the Durst film could have been like a really long or multi-part film might have worked. One 100 minute movie just wasn't going to cut just it. Just not enough. No. All right, well, that's all good things, and that's available right now on Netflix. And if you want to watch The Jinx, that's available on HBO Go or HBO Now. So our Q Shots subject this episode of Film Spotting SVU is true crime movies. True crime movies. I have two very good true crime movies to discuss. I don't know about you, Allison. I, I enjoy this this category. And maybe not all good things, but there's a lot of good true crime movies. There are. And there are a lot of terrible ones as well. Which true. is something that I kind of enjoy about this category. That yes. it can include some great works of film. Mm -hmm. But it also includes like a whole bunch of Lifetime original movies. That's true. It whole, and I, I think sometimes... I, I like when films engage with that aspect. I mean, the recreations in The Jinx or the recreations in Thin Blue Line even mm -hmm. do seem like nods to, 
your your unsolved murder kind of uh, TV lurid, shows, yeah, lurid, you know, recreations. And I appreciate that. It's got some highs and lows. Absolutely. Should we get to our picks? Let's get to them. All right. Do you want me to go first? Why don't you go first? All right. My first pick was directed by one of the guys who I think of as really one of the masters of true crime film in the 1970s and beyond, and that's Sidney Lumet, who made Dog Day Afternoon, which is an incredible film about a New York City bank robbery. He made Prince in the City. He also, one of his very last films that he ever made was a true crime film as well, Find Me Guilty with Vin Diesel with hair. With, it's weird. Yeah, it's not one. That one's not one of his best ones, <laughs> I will admit. The one that I am going to recommend, because I, I was going to do Dog Day Afternoon, but I figured everyone has seen that, probably. It's very famous. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd recommend something a little less famous is Serpico from 1973 that stars Al Pacino as NYPD cop Frank Paco Serpico who spent years in the NYPD trying to get anyone to help him root out the rampant corruption he witnessed working as a plainclothes detective, or not a detective, a plainclothes officer, I guess, in Brooklyn and the Bronx. Serpico always wanted to be a cop as a kid, but once he got there, he found that he had trouble fitting in. He lives in Greenwich Village, he dresses like a hippie, and most importantly, he just refuses to violate his moral code and go along with his co-workers, most of whom skim money from the gamblers and gangsters that they bust and see absolutely nothing wrong with it. They think that this is just part of the job. But Serpico's honesty and decency refuse to let him do that, and that makes him a pariah. At one point, one of his partners actually says, who can trust a cop who doesn't take money, which is such an absurd <laughs> statement, but it gives you a sense of the degree to which the police department in the 1960s was was that corrupt. And I don't have any reason to believe that the police department today is corrupt, but obviously the, de- the behavior of cops has been in the news a lot lately, and that makes, I think, Serpico an interesting film to watch today. And the lesson I think that's applicable today are the dangers that are inherent when cops stop upholding the law and start kind of upholding the status quo, right? Whatever that is, when that's really their focus. And that's the root of the problem that Serpico finds. It's not that these crimes are being committed, which they are, and that's a problem too, but it's like that it's it's systemic. That's the way and that's the way it's always been done. That's what we do and and that's what we, that's how it's been done for years and so we just keep doing it that way. And and even before he finds the corruption, he finds that that's the case. When he goes to work for a couple years in the identification bureau, he gets in trouble cuz he actually cares and tries. Whereas, you know, it's 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 like a desk job to a lot of people and it's just pushing paper and that gets him into trouble because he's actually like investigating and working too hard, you know, and he he in this other famous scene in the movie where he almost gets shot because he's dressed like a hippie or, you know, not dressed like a cop. He has long hair and a mustache. He has to let the guy who almost killed him take credit for the arrest because that's kind of the only way to uh, – that, that they, he needs to fill out the paperwork and it would be bad form for a f- police officer to be using his gun if there wasn't an arrest involved. You know, that's just the way it's done. And it's it's like that phrase, like, well, that's the way it's always done. Like, that's – the movie is kind of about that. In terms of the the true crime aspect of the story, the one thing that I really found that I was associating with true crime as a genre when I was thinking about this was a certain amount of grittiness. Not Christopher Nolan, Batman, people talking like this grittiness, but the real dirt and grime of a real city. Serpico was shot in New York City in, ni- in the early 1970s in lofts, in apartment buildings, in warehouses, in disgusting-looking alleys. And the flavor of this 
New York City at the time is just it's just baked into the movie and that naturalism, that authenticity, I think it it, it really it, it kind of it's infectious and it almost like infects everything about the movie where Lumet is able to kind of go outside the corruption story to just do some kind of naturalistic, realistic things. So I love the scene where Al Pacino, who's moving to Greenwich Village, is just singing uh, opera in his car at the top of his lungs as he's driving across the Williamsburg Bridge. Terribly. The worst opera singing you've ever heard. But it's just this nice little moment. And I love the scene where one of the cops has been shot and is in the hospital. And, and Lumet focuses on the guys cutting off the clothes and snipping off the chain and all the little details. Like, it's 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 uh, there's something about the true crime aspect that I feel like gives you kind of artistic license maybe to dawdle just a little bit. All good things might have been better if it dawdled more. That it's the problem is it's just so it's so focused on on the narrative, the narrative, the narrative, you know. And I I also think that maybe true crime has a is allowed to be a little darker. Maybe we want a lot of people want fiction movies to have happy endings, and when you when you tell a true story, people are kind of willing to accept. Oh, it's true, so it's depressing. That's a true story. Maybe I don't know. Uh, so I'd seen Superco before. I didn't really like it that much when I saw it in high school. I definitely didn't appreciate it. It is really good. Al Pacino's fantastic. One of his signature performances. Doing all the stuff that he would be famous for later. Screaming and yelling and having a kind of a weird accent. And But it's it's pitched at just the right level here. It's not too much. It's not over the top. It's really great. So that's Serpico, and it is streaming now on Netflix. All right. Well, my first pick is certainly fits that that idea of true crime being a little dark. Perfect. I won't sound like a moron. Well, it's uh, available for rent right now. Autofocus, the 2002 film directed by Paul Schrader. That is darker. Yes. Based on the life of radio DJ turned actor and Hogan Heroes star Bob Crane, played by Greg Kinnear in a role that makes wonderfully dark use of his kind of affable, vague, blurry <laughs> charm. It It just layers it over this story of sex addiction and eventual murder and like lets it be unchanged even as this character kind of spirals out into disaster and like all good things it's it's shaped by this unsolved murder uh in this case crane was was found bludgeoned to death in arizona in 1978 uh, after his acting career had declined into dinner theater and he had uh, become ba- basically a sex addict who is liked to tape himself having sex. Um, Bob Crane was probably killed by his cohort and possible murderer, John Carpenter, who is played with characteristic creepiness by Willem Dafoe, um, who was basically his partner in crime, going out to pick up women with him um, and documenting it via photography and cutting edge at the time, home video technology. Mm. Um, And I think what makes autofocus so memorable is the way that it normalizes its destructive behavior. Uh, in this case, the destructive behavior is not illegal, not until the end, but it is certainly creepy uh, in the way that Bob sometimes tapes women without their consent or lying to them about the camera being off. And in the way that he continues, in this voiceover that goes on even after he dies, uh, it, to, to describe himself as this good guy even as he like torpedoes two marriages and leaves his families behind with this addiction that he won't acknowledge. He always talks about it as like sex is normal. Sex is healthy. What I'm doing is healthy. The kind of compulsive and somewhat joyless sex that I am having every night with women I pick up 
uh, is totally healthy. This weird, disturbing, codependent relationship I'm having with this guy who likes to tape me, uh, totally healthy. Um, even as Bob uses his fame to get laid and John uses Bob to get laid. Um, and afterwards, they both watch the tapes and do a play-by-play. <laughs> and the the way that their relationship, the kind of matter-of-factness of their relationship, it, it verges at one point into homoerotic but it almost doesn't doesn't really need to be. It's understood to be so codependent and such this like folie a deux in which they've they've both convinced each other's behavior is normal. Is something that the film portrays really well, especially when Bob goes out into the public on things like public appearances on um on a cooking show, and it becomes clear and it becomes clear that he's forgotten how to behave in public. Like he makes completely inappropriate comments about women in the audience. This is a movie that features Richard Dawson, who was young when he was younger, was on Hogan's Heroes as well. And he is not even the creepiest guy in in the movie. He's like left behind. He's left in the dust. And uh, Kinnear is throughout just cheery. He is like everyone's, uh, you know everyone's ideal dad he's even in a disney movie at one point towards the end called like super dad that, t- that tanks horribly and uh, i i think that what makes this work in the true crime angle is that you know that there's this terrible end waiting for him but that he can never seem to pull back that he there there seems to be so little to him but in a way that is very known unlike all good things where it never seems to grasp its version of robert durst you uh, autofocus certainly grasps its version of bob crane and he, he's not a really deep guy but he is uh, really interestingly capable of spinning this narrative of delusion in his head and uh the movie never, uh, John Carpenter was never convicted. He was actually later, he was later uh, brought to trial for murdering Bob Crane. Not He was acquitted. And it also does not commit to uh, showing this murder actually, showing Carpenter actually murdering him. But you you get a pretty good sense that he did it. And also that there was just no way he would allow Bob to pull away from him. And uh, it, it, is a sad ending, but also a perfect fit for how seamy and kind of tragic this story is. It's really well done, and it's a really great Greg Kinnear role. That is autofocus, and it is available for rent. One interesting little trivia note here. The autofocus film was based on the book The Murder of Bob Crane by Robert Graysmith, who is also the author of the book Zodiac, which inspired the movie Zodiac, which in my mind is the one of the ultimate true crime films of all time. Yeah. Um, which we've talked about before on the on the on the show. So I didn't want to make that one of my picks, but oh my God, Zodiac is amazing and you should watch that. And uh, I did want to throw out two other movies that are available online that we've also discussed before on the show, been recommendations before. So I didn't want to make those my other picks, but also favorites of mine, Memories of Murder, mm-hmm. which is available on Hulu, and The Bling Ring which is available on Amazon Prime and is a movie that I like quite a bit as well. So those are two additional picks. One thing that my official last pick, though, does well, that Serpico also did, and I, I think Autofocus does to some extent as well, uh, as I recall, is show the passage of time. Uh, something that All Good Things tried to do, probably did less successfully, but definitely something that it tried to do. In Serpico, you... Uh, see Frank Serpico go from this clean-cut idealistic cop on literally his first day on the job 
to the shaggy, rumpled, sad, exhausted guy who came out the other end, basically on the very last day of the job. You you see the whole arc. And one of the things I love about Serpico is, I don't know if you know this, Allison, but to like show that transformation without making Al Pacino wear lots of wigs and beards and that kind of thing, they actually shot the movie completely in reverse. They had him grow out his hair, so... And then they just, as they went, he would cut off, <laughs> cut a little hair, cut some of the beard, cut some, you know, and, and so by the, and that the last thing they shot was him as a young, innocent guy so that it wouldn't, he wouldn't have to wear a stupid fake beard. Like it's, it's his actual hair. And I think that's a, a genius little thing that not enough people do. But anyway, that's Serpico. Uh, my next pick Catch Me If You Can, shows the same kind of evolution of a man over time. In this case, though, it's primarily following the criminal, not the cop, and that's Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank Abagnale, one of the most prolific and successful conmen and check forgers of the 20th century. And for years, Abagnale was chased around the world uh, by a dedicated FBI agent named Carl Hanratty, played by Tom Hanks. Director Steven Spielberg watches him evolve from this innocent kid who runs away from home and just starts cashing fake checks almost on a lark out of desperation because he runs out of money to becoming this bold, basically this genius of fraud, right, who masquerades as a Pan Am pilot to trick bank tellers. Then he pretends to be a doctor. He pretends to be a lawyer. He fools everyone, basically, that he meets except uh, Carl Hanratty. And I liked this movie when it first came out in 2002, but in recent years, I've really come to think it's one of Steven Spielberg's very best movies. I would put it just below, you know, the masterpieces, the Jaws, the Raiders, the Schindler's List. I really like it. And what I really admire is the fact that, yes, it's a cat and mouse thriller. It's very entertaining, but it's also this very powerful movie about family, about loneliness, about identity. Um, without ever sacrificing the entertainment value, Spielberg made this really sad movie. One of the saddest movies that's set primarily or frequently on Christmas, too. It's, Christmas constantly is one of the recurring themes. I wonder if, as a uh, as a Jewish guy, if Steven Spielberg could relate to kind of having a bummer of a Christmas. I don't know. That's just me speculating. Uh, if Serpico is a true crime movie about authenticity, Catch Me If You Can is, I would say, like a true crime movie about phoniness. Frank is great at being a con man because he's great at lying and changing his identity. But if you can become anyone, that kind of also means that you are no one, right? That you're literally nothing. And there's something really kind of poignant about that. That's what I love about the movie. And Spielberg, like a lot of his movies, have this theme of growing up, getting older, trying to maintain your innocence, your childlike wonder. And that's all wrapped up in this, too, in this kind of sad story of... of Frank Abagnale kind of losing this perfect childhood or this perfect belief that he had in his father and running away from home and sort of this romantic life he thinks he's going to have and where it winds up. It's it's really good. It's a fun movie, but it's it's powerful, too. If you haven't seen it, I think it's worth checking out. And if you saw it and just thought, oh, it's fine, maybe it's worth a second look. The more time goes on, this is definitely one of my favorite Spielbergs. So that's Catch Me If You Can. And that is available for rent at all the usual sites and locations. All right. My second pick is one that is available for streaming on Netflix. And it is The Snowtown Murders, a 2011 Australian film directed by Justin Kurtzel, 
whose next film, Macbeth, um, with Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard, is in competition at Cannes. So moving on up for Justin. It's, uh, this movie is based on the true story of John Bunting, who is, I think, one of, if not the worst serial killer in Australian history. Um, Bunting and his accomplices, including Robert Wagner and James Vlasakis, who committed a string of murders in South Australia in the 90s. And what this movie does very well, as much as, as it is very difficult to watch, it is grueling t- at times because it is so dark, is that it manages to explain the unimaginable, you know, when you're like, how could someone convince two other people to participate in this string of murders with him? It explains that and also makes it mundane. Daniel Henshaw is very is just chilling in the most cheery, matter of fact way as John Bunting, um, while Lucas Pitaway in his screen debut plays Jamie Vlasakis uh, and is basically the main character. He's a teenager when the movie starts, growing up in this very beat up suburb of Adelaide with a single mother who's clearly made some rough choices along the way, including dating a man who likes to take photos of her sons in their underwear. And when she figures this out, she uh, the police are not being any help. She asks for help from the community, and John surfaces as this this character who's kind of a, a man's man. He's a friend of a friend. He's very outspoken in his hatred of pedophiles, and also, it turns out, gay people, and also, it turns out later, people he just deems weak in general. Um, and, I, you know, John is very good at playing into this sense of underlying anger in the people around him and people who have, who are living lives of general, general poverty and who are, are, are generally downtrodden. One of the best scenes in the movie is one that's early on before any of the killing really starts where he is like leading a discussion of the local people about pedophiles and basically rile, like riling them up by getting them to talk about how much of a problem it is and like why no one will help them and how what they would do to pedophiles, you know, what they would do to people who touch their children and just building up this anger based on like largely theoretical events. It, it, the movie makes very clear that as much as all of these, these people have like such anger in them and can't wait, would, would love to take it out on someone like as unequivocally bad as a pedophile that there's all kinds of things going on in the home that that uh, Jamie's mother is completely unaware of, including one scene that's just devastatingly framed in which Jamie is raped by an older or by one of his relatives. And it just starts off as this mundane scene of kind of like tussling that then turns into a rape. And that as it happens and the way it happens, it makes it it suggests very strongly that this is not the first time that this has happened. And so at a certain point, when the murders start and the torture starts, it's all the choice that's being given to these characters, particularly to Jamie is whether or not to accept the narrative that these, this is all being done for the greater good, even though he knows it's not true uh, or to walk away from this community that has been, you know, and from this man who is a father figure and also who acknowledges him and who says he's doing things for his behalf on his behalf. And uh, it's as incredibly grim as this movie is, it makes the psychology of that understandable. And I think that's something that's very impressive, uh, even as this goes to terrible, darker places. So uh, it's, it's 
very well done very depressing uh and i would say worth a watch you know kurtzel i think is a very talented filmmaker and this shows a lot of promise in some ways it felt like the grittier if this is it's funny to say this it was the grittier and grimmer version of animal kingdom (laughs) or like pairing to animal kingdom a movie that was already pretty gritty and grim and uh, i would recommend it it is the snowtown murders and it is streaming on netflix all right allison what segment are we up to now on the show Allison and Matt's. <laughs> Singer and Wilmore is completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. Is that what you're looking for? Yep, that's the one. Yeah, it's uh, the time on the show where we put down the streaming devices that we refuse to re- let out of our sights the rest of our lives <laughs> and talk about something or some things that are new in theaters. There's a couple of uh, big movies opening this weekend. I've uh, Well, we've seen one of them. Both have seen one of them. You have seen one that I haven't seen. So why don't you briefly mention that one first? All right. It is Pitch Perfect 2, the sequel to the sleeper hit that was kind of bring it on with acapella, basically. Right. And uh, in this case, Elizabeth Banks, who was the producer of the first one, is now directing it. All of the cast is back. And I would say... They're still in college? They are seniors in college now. They are, They've been left back several years. They are yes, seniors in actually, college. That is actually a joke. Is there at a one joke? Point about okay. One of the characters is like, I failed this class so many times so that I could, yeah. Okay. Uh, they are competing at internationals, which they say is a thing. <laughs> okay. Um, I would say basically the music is better and the comedy is worse, including okay. uh, the first film's tendency to make kind of vaguely offensive jokes and have them kind of like race-based or like about gender and just kind of have them be like the joke is that they're so offensive right i would say there's definitely too much of that this okay. time around especially from uh john michael higgins and elizabeth banks as the commentators uh, and i don't think it, that part works very well but the music's good okay so you think but you think you think if you're people because that movie has a very passionate fan base people love that movie are you saying they're going to be disappointed or they're going to be satisfied i think they'll be a little disappointed okay well the other movie i'm i'm terrified because they've had this we we haven't been allowed to talk about it for weeks since we saw it but uh, by the time this podcast is released the embargo will be over so we could talk about it it is mad max fury road and for the life of me i can't understand why they don't want people talking about it because it's so good it's amazing it's so good this movie is great usually when a studio is trying hard to keep people from writing or talking about a movie it's because they know it's a stinker this is no stinker this is a incredible incredible movie i i mean to me i i don't i i'm i don't want to be too hyperbolic but is there a better movie a car chase movie than this I don't know. The thing is also, it almost feels unfair to call it a car chase movie because I know it's that. so grand in yeah. scope and craziness. And yet it's all so physical. Like yes. so much of it was done with practical effects and actual cars. And you can see it has this physicality that like is very noticeable. Right. And I don't, I was thinking when it started, I was like, you know, the original Mad Max, like, he lived in like the suburbs. Basically, <laughs> he yeah. He, they went to a diner, I think, at one point. It is amazing and it works really well how far into the apocalypse this installment takes place. Right. So this is the fourth Mad Max. It really you don't need to know anything about the previous movies other than the fact that it's set, you know, like all the movies after the first one, they're set in the, the post apocalyptic wasteland of Australia. You know, the world has ended and this guy, Max, is just wandering around 
trying to survive. That's it. That's all you need to know. It's sort of like Yojimbo or a Western where it's this wandering. Except he also it never even intends to set out to help anyone. Generally, no. Well, that's what makes him kind of like, like Yojimbo, right. who's not necessarily a hero. He's just sort of like interjecting himself into these stories. Stories. Exactly. Yes. Right. And instead of Mel Gibson, you now have Tom Hardy doing yet another accent that is unlike any accent any other human being has ever like that's all he does is he makes up these accents i'm not saying he's bad he's right. good at it but he doesn't sound yeah, like mel placeable. gibson he's not australian he's not australian he's not anything he's not anything he says his weird voice he mo and it mostly is grumbling and mumbling he what doesn't was that? talk that much at all well he doesn't talk very much at all but when he does talk a lot of it is on the one hand it is just a pure visceral non-stop action movie and on the other hand i also did feel like there was some commentary going on here there's environmental stuff going on here there's some gender stuff going oh, on yeah, here definitely. and Charlize theron is is as much the lead yes. as tom hardy and she's terrific she's fantastic she's uh, as an action lead like as a real like she's a badass like, yes she is incredibly tough and very cool looking yep. with like blackened top of her head and a missing limb with like a mechanical. She's got a robo arm. Yeah, robo arm. It's uh, yeah. And yeah, the, the whole gender dynamics and that kind of thing that play out towards the end. Very interesting really because interesting. it's, it's mostly a large, like raving pack of guys, super aggressive, like macho dudes who are chasing after these women. Right. And, and these the women, women have been treated as commodities. Yeah. Yes. It, it, it jives kind of nicely with like ex machina where it's these women who have been, not only you know commodities, but also like enslaved, kept in a box, who've escaped or want to escape, and men trying to kind of put them back in their place, essentially. And 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 Max is sort of the one guy who's in the middle. Although there's well, there is another guy. I don't want to spoil too much, but right. uh, and that was great. Yeah. It's fabulous. It is really fabulous. It is incredibly entertaining. I can't see how if you go in knowing I want you know if you've seen the trailers and you go this looks good, I cannot conceive of a human being walking out feeling unsatisfied. Like you didn't get what you were promised. It is incredible and somehow it just keeps topping itself scene after scene the first car chase in the movie is one of the craziest car chases i've ever seen in a movie and that's the least crazy car chase in the movie <laughs> it just yeah. keeps getting weirder and wilder and more insane and more entertaining and there is a guy who plays a flamethrower guitar yes on on a car that's made out of guitar speakers <laughs> yes, and that on the drums. back has war drummers on it it's so crazy it really is. Uh, it is incredibly spectacular. It is a. It is a spectacle unlike. I mean, even though it is a sequel, it it it's it looks different. It feels special. It doesn't feel like a fourth movie. It is. No, it stands alone, and also it allows. It gives you a sense of this. This really wild, like. Uh, like post-apocalyptic society or set of savage societies without ever having someone stand there and be like, let me explain what all of these things mean. Right. Like you have, you gather a bit of how all of the these things work from things that are like, as this chase is going on. Right. But it's so good about being like, you don't need the rules here. Yeah. Well, like you said, there's not a lot of dialogue. Exposition is kept at a minimum. You just sort of see things and you have to understand what they're there for. And sometimes it doesn't even matter what they're there for. They're just cool ideas. It just tosses off these amazing concepts, designs. Like I, I was sitting there going, if this movie doesn't get or at least get nominated for the best production design, best costume design at the Academy Awards next year, something is very wrong with the system because it's so brilliantly creative visually. And it's just, it's really fun. I would love to watch it. I would watch it right now. I, don't, I've, you, I would too. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. All right. Well, I think we've, we've talked w more than enough. 
I hope if we haven't convinced anyone, we'll never we're never going to convince them at this rate. So that's Mad Max Fury Road. That is definitely definitely worth seeing in the movie theater for sure. All right, what was the name of that segment again, Alice? No. no. <laughs> I just said it a minute ago. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, Behind the 8-Ball. We wrap things up every time on our show with a countdown of three new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys have emailed to us at svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also have one film that we've each chosen blindly by number from the others, my list on Netflix. Allison, why don't you go first? I will go first. All right. I just, well, then go first. Okay, then. Why don't you start with uh, three new titles on streaming? All right. First up, new to Netflix is The Homesman, Tommy Lee Jones's latest film as a director. It's another Western. One set in 1850 where Hilary Swank plays a spinster living by herself in Nebraska territory, trying to find a husband to make a life with and continually getting rejected for being too plain and too bossy. When she volunteers to help bring uh, three local women who've had breakdowns thanks to the rough living conditions to a mental hospital, um, she ends up Enlisting the help of George Briggs, who's played by Jones and who is a claim jumper to whom she promises a reward. And uh, I think this movie has a like a point where it takes a very sharp turn. And that is the most interesting thing about it is that it seems like a funnier movie than suddenly it is revealed that it is for one of the characters. Uh, So that is on Netflix. Um, Also new to Netflix is Winter Sleep. Nuri Bilga Ceylon's film about a wealthy hotel owner, his wife and sister, and a local much poorer community, and from all reports, a lot of bickering and exquisite uh, cinematography. This won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last year. I missed it there and have been both wanting to see it and feeling like it's a mountain to scale at 196 minutes. Um, and it even even some people who have talked to me who've liked it a lot described it as difficult or punishing <laughs> um, so it's the kind of film that requires a certain amount of surrender and finally new on Hulu Closed Curtain is the second film that Iranian director Jafar Panahi has made since he was banned from filmmaking for 20 years and it is about a screenwriter who goes out to a villa by the sea only to encounter a brother and sister who are trying to hide from the police after being at an illegal party and from there goes to uh, interesting and slightly less real places, and that is streaming on Hulu. What is a homesman? Is that like a, is a it... homesman? Is supposedly someone who brings, I think, bodies back or brings. I don't so he's know. not one of the Avengers. Home, yeah, homesman. The homesman. There, there was a doc uh, called the Deli Man that was out recently, <laughs> and I was like, that's a weird superpower to have, but useful, really, yeah, on a practical basis. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good. Now I know. Well, how about uh, two listener recommendations? Okay. First up, we have one from Paul in Adelaide, who is on Twitter at Return of Smith. Paul writes, starting this week, the wait is finally over. One of Disney's finest cinematic achievements has been added to Netflix, the Lizzie McGuire movie. This wonderful children's comedy has Hilary Duff's titular Lizzie McGuire traveling to Rome for a school trip and, as often happens, is mistaken for an Italian pop star. The movie was a massive hit when it was released and actually has held up pretty well. The music is fun, Rome looks great, and Family Guy's Alex Borstein is quite funny as the comic relief. You could definitely do worse for the tween or tween at heart in your life. Second recommendation is from Ben who says, I wanted to write in with a recommendation for a fascinating film on Netflix I discovered called Charlie Victor Romeo. The video is a filmed version of a stage play that recreates six real-life airplane catastrophes only through the use of black box recordings of those events. 
The play features actors on a stage perfectly lip-syncing the real audio and accurately miming the controls. Each of the six sections begins with the flight, date, and cause of the malfunction, and then ends with the fate of the airplane and the people on board. Each section is done in a very obviously fake set that gives a Brechtian-style fictional version of the real crash. The film is incredibly fascinating and quite disturbing. It is certainly not a film to watch before a big flight. Still, it's an incredibly innovative style of documentary storytelling that I recommend to anyone who likes unique forms of documentary recreation used in films like The Arbor or The Act of Killing. All right, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your My List? You gave me number two, which is Beyond Clueless, a 2014 doc written and directed by Charlie Line and narrated by Feruza Balk, and is all about teen movies of the 90s and the aughts, ah. from Clueless to Mean Girls. Interesting. And as far as I've read, it's kind of uh, a documentary as film essay that digs into the subtext of these movies and has some, some film critics involved. So I'm intrigued and added it to my my list, Beyond Clueless. Hmm. I might add that to my my list. <laughs> All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. All right, first up, one of my favorite documentaries of recent years, Exit Through the Gift Shop, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. It's the debut film of street artist Banksy, who chronicles the rise of another street artist, his friend, or possibly his secret creation, Mr. Brainwash. It's a very entertaining story and also a fascinating exploration about what makes something art, what makes someone an artist, and exactly how much art there is in commerce and vice versa. Uh, next up on Netflix is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. This is the seventh film uh, in the Nightmare on Elm Street series and the only nightmare after the first that Wes Craven himself actually directed. The twist on this is that it's not set in the same continuity as the other Freddy Krueger movies. It's set in Hollywood, where Wes Craven, playing himself, is working on a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie with the original film star, playing herself, Heather Langenkamp. But it seems like Freddy is forcing himself into the real world. Uh, with the caveat that this film kind of falls apart at the at the end, it's kind of an interesting movie. It's worth seeing. It is kind of a... It's almost like a rehearsal for Scream in that meta-textual self-critiquing, self-commenting horror movie kind of a way. It was kind of the set the stage for Scream. Uh, yeah, the end's not great, but uh, the beginning is really fun. The beginning's it, so good. Yeah, the first, like, half is amazing. So that's Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That is available on Netflix. And finally, one of the great masterpieces of world cinema, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is now on Hulu. Uh, actually, this movie is not that unlike Wes Craven's New Nightmare, <laughs> only without True. the psychopathic child killer with knives on his fingers. It is about a director on the threshold of making a new movie, one that is definitely based on Fellini himself, but in this case is played by Marcello Mastriani, whose Guido is suffering from the directorial version of writer's block, essentially. It's a very confessional movie about life and love and dreams and making movies and the slippery lines between each of those. It is a great film. It is worth seeing if you haven't seen it. Eight and a half. It is available on Hulu. All right, two listener recommendations. First up from uh, a longtime listener of the show, Joe in Astoria. He writes, Hi, Matt and Allison. First off, I want to say that Allison could not have been more right about It Follows, easily the best horror film I've seen in years. I don't know why you were right and I wasn't I right. I said it first. I saw it at Cannes. Oh, it's all about being first. First, yep. first, first. Well, yeah. I saw it second, but I saw it 
best. Yeah. Yeah. It is a really good movie. It's a great movie. It's a fantastic <laughs> movie. I love that movie. Anyway, uh, Joe writes, I'm sure I'm not alone in hoping its success leads to a new wave of truly scary movies. Maybe a little ahead of that trend is Oculus, a studio horror film from last year currently streaming on Netflix that flew mostly under the radar despite some good reviews. It features parallel storylines about a brother and sister experiencing a family tragedy in adolescence that may or may not have been caused by a haunted mirror and then coming back to their family's home to confront this potentially supernatural force a decade later after the brother is released from a mental hospital. Director and co-writer Mike Flanagan does a superb job in seamlessly moving between the present and the past, as well as between what seems like objective reality and what might or might not be tricks of the mind or of the supernatural. It's a relentlessly creep creepy film that legitimately keeps you on the edge of your seat without resorting to cheap scares. That's from Joe and Astoria. And the film is called Oculus. Did you see that one? I did not see that one. Oh, they didn't show that one at Cannes. I guess not. I, I didn't see it either. I will say I, I've been curious about seeing it, mostly because at the Metropolitan Avenue stop in New York City, there is still a billboard for Oculus. This movie came out over a year ago. The, some, the poster never came down. Me, it's that good. It's it's that good. Or it's a there's a creepy horror movie waiting to be found in the story of the poster, <laughs> the poster that would never come down. I don't know, maybe not. But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that Oculus. That's on Netflix. Thank you, Joe. Our second recommendation comes from Travis in Fountain Valley, California, of the Videodrome podcast, a blatant SVU ripoff show. Yes, I like it. Uh, I would like it if we were getting like residuals, which we're not. Well, I just like you don't care. I like to be ripped off. It shows that we're doing a good job. I okay, guess. fair enough. Travis writes, "I'm recommending Resident Advisors, which is streaming on Hulu. It's somehow simultaneously cute, sweet, and raunchy. With only seven half-hour episodes, it's a quick binge watch with some really good writing and a fun cast. That is Resident Advisors streaming on Hulu. Thank you, Travis, for that recommendation. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number 15, and number 15 this time is the punk singer. Filmmaker Sini Anderson charts the life of feminist punk rocker Kathleen Hanna, who suddenly and mysteriously retired from the music scene in 2005. I don't know a ton about Kathleen Hanna, and that's why I wanted to see the movie. I like a music doc. I like a music bio doc. I heard some good things about the punk singer, so that's why I added it to my my list. Allison, are you ready to discuss our listeners' choice options for our next episode? I am. We have three recent films. It's a good batch. I'm not sure what's going to win. Uh, I'd be pretty satisfied with any of them, although one would be tougher to uh, watch than the others. Yeah. For reasons that will become clear. The first option, though is called What We Do in the Shadows. It is a film directed by Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi. It is available for rental right now on various sites like Amazon and iTunes. I will read you the plot description from IMDb. It says, Viago, Deacon, and Vladislav are vampires who are finding that modern life has them struggling with the mundane, like paying rent, keeping up with the chore wheel, trying to get into nightclubs, and overcoming flatmate conflicts. Taika Waititi is the guy who directed Eagle vs. Shark. He directed Boy. He directed a bunch of episodes of Flight of the Concords, which is what Jermaine Clement is, of course, best known for. Uh, I heard great things about this movie. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I've heard it's very funny. It sounds kind of like, uh, what was the Jim Jarmusch film about the vampires? Only Lovers Left Alive? Yeah, it sounds that, like that. But funny. <laughs> but funny. That's how it sounds. That description, that's what it sounds like to me, which sounds good. Yes. I liked Only Lovers Left Alive, but I think a comedy version of that could also be really great. 
So that's one I'm looking forward to checking out. You haven't seen it yet either, Allison. I have not, and I've heard really good things and yes. would love to see it. All right. So that's option one, What We Do in the Shadows, which you can rent right now. All right. Option two is available for streaming on Netflix. It is All is By My Side or Jimmy, colon, All is By My Side, yeah. as, appar- as it is apparently now titled. Uh, written and directed by Jim Ridley, Oscar-winning screenwriter for 12 Years a Slave. A biopic about Jimi Hendrix, who is played in the film by Andre Benjamin of Outcast. This movie kind of slipped into theaters and then slipped out without getting much attention, which is surprising given just the people involved in making it. Uh, though it was a kind of troubled biopic, the estate, Jimi Hendrix's estate, denied the film use of any of Hendrix's music, which That's is a, problem. a challenge. Yeah. Yes. And some of Hendrix's friends, um, surviving friends, did not like it and have spoken out against it. Uh, that being said, sometimes that's a sign of a good documentary about someone uh, that that it is controversial and that their friends did not find it the movie that they wanted to see. Right. And I, certainly Jim Ridley is a talent to be reckoned with. And I'm curious about what he what he made of Jimi Hendrix's life. Yeah, me too. Um, so that's one that I would certainly be interested in seeing. It's streaming on Netflix. All right. Option three is also available now on Netflix. It is Winter Sleep. I think it was just mentioned a few minutes ago, directed by Nuri Bilga Ceylon. Uh, I'll read the plot description here from IMDb. Aiden, a former actor, runs a small hotel in central Anatolia with his young wife, Nihal, with whom he has a stormy relationship, and his sister, Nekla, who is suffering from her recent divorce in winter as the snow begins to fall the hotel turns into a shelter but also an inescapable place that fuels their animosities and it's 196 minutes long and it was last year's palm door winner at the Cannes film festival the Cannes film festival allison did you see it there were you the first to see it there i got shut out I oh you got shut difficult. out you got shut out at the Cannes yeah. film festival so and then never tried to see it again <laughs> after that in all of the time that since then yeah ne- well know. neither have i for being honest this is you know i have to admit uh, I, uh the film spotting original recipe show big supporters of nuri bilga jaylon they love his work they loved once upon a time in anatolia i gotta admit i'm not as big a fan I, I yeah I'm very mixed. I feel like no one makes movies that are better looking. His movies are beautiful. Are, like, not just beautiful, like they're just stunningly beautiful sure. shot and framed. Like he the the kind of thought he puts into framing right. and is like really amazing. He's a genius. Yes. He's a visual genius, but they can be a little bit of a slog. Like not even the slog, but sometimes I just also I feel like you're watching just an amped up melodrama mm-hmm. that is just exquisitely made yeah. and gets treated with more weight than sometimes I'm finding on screen. Mm, I think that's fair. Nonetheless, it is a Palm d'Or winner. Attention must be paid. And this would be a very good excuse to force us to watch 196 minutes that I suspect otherwise we might not do anytime soon. Not. It's a tough one to kick back. Well, uh, 196 minutes of like three people bickering in a, <laughs> in a mountaintop hotel. Right. Um, yeah, I think it's difficult with movies like that to be like, I'm going to kick back. Right, uh, it's Friday night yeah. at, at 9 o'clock. I had a long week. I'm going to watch. I'm going to stay in, and I'm going to watch this. Winter sleep. Movie, yeah. But that is what we will do if you vote for yes. it. So that's why it's on there. I think it's a, it's a good option to have on there as well. So that's winter sleep. 
available now on Netflix. All right. Well, which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or even easier, you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, May 18th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, May 26th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share lots more streaming suggestions from the SVU listeners, from Allison herself, as she's constantly looking for new stuff on these websites. Uh, don't forget, too, while you're uh, browsing the Internet, looking at iTunes, doing the things you're doing with your life, maybe give us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars. Help us reach some new listeners. Help us climb those iTunes, those unforgiving iTunes charts. It would help us quite a bit. Thank you very much in advance for your humble compliance. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.